92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program features Mayor Michael Bloomberg in conversation with political consultant Ken Friedman and was recorded November 23, 2004, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Good evening, everyone. I'm Rochelle Katzman, and I am very proud to be a program associate here at the 92nd Street Y. Welcome to our original and exciting series, New York Talks. This series features famous New Yorkers, some who were born here and some who have chosen to make this city their own, sharing their experiences, their hopes, their fears for this New York, the capital of the world. I'm absolutely thrilled, as I know all of you are, that tonight this enormously busy mayor has found the time to grace our stage and bring us a bit closer to the demanding task he has every day of managing this city. However, before I bring him out, I just want to talk very briefly about our moderator this evening, Ken Friedman. Some of you have had the pleasure of attending evenings where Ken has acted as moderator, so you already know what a dynamic and charismatic speaker he is. To others, it will be a wonderful introduction. Ken has been in and around New York City in media, politics, business, and public relations for at least 25 years. He held senior positions at the Daily News and U.S. News and World Report and served as press secretary to Rudy Giuliani during his first successful mayoral campaign. Ken is currently an executive vice president at Golan Harris, which is one of the leading public relations firms in the world. And now, Ken. Thank you. Good evening. Welcome to New York Talks with Mayor Michael R. Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg became mayor on November 6, 2001, when he defeated Democrat Mark Green 49% to 47%. He was born on February 14, 1942, to middle-class parents in Medford, Massachusetts, where his father was the bookkeeper at a local dairy. Mr. Bloomberg's thirst for information and entrepreneurial fascination with technology were evident at an early age and led him to Johns Hopkins University, where he parked cars and took out loans to finance his education. After his college graduation, Michael Bloomberg gained an MBA from Harvard, and in the summer of 1966, he was hired by Solomon Brothers to work on Wall Street. Mr. Bloomberg quickly advanced through the ranks and became a partner in 1972. Soon after, he was supervising all of Solomon's stock trading, sales, and later, its information systems. He was fired in 1981. I debated whether or not to tell you that, but it's, but it's in his official biography, so I'm sure he, he, won't, he won't mind too much. And now I'm forced to repeat the same line. He was fired in 1981 after another company acquired Solomon, but used his stake from the sale to start Bloomberg LP and create a financial information computer known to everyone in financial services as the Bloomberg that would collect and analyze different combinations of past and present securities data and information, deliver it immediately to the user, and make Bloomberg a brand name. In 1990, Bloomberg LP entered the media business, launching a news service and then radio, television, internet, and publishing operations. And I should note here that Mr. Bloomberg obviously put the right people in charge of Bloomberg LP because the value of the company has increased since he became mayor. Ladies and gentlemen, 
please welcome the 108th mayor of the city of New York, the Honorable Michael R. Bloomberg. Thank you. Buenas noches. Buenas noches. Senor Alcalde, como esta Gracias. Uh, bien? Your Spanish is very good, Mayor. I, I guess don't that know means about you're bien, running. But I'm working on it. Well, but I guess that means you're running for re-election. Right? I am running for re-election. <laughs> it's probably a fair bet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mayor, when you're 62 years old. It is hard to learn a new language. I will tell you that. Well, you've, uh, you've done very well at it, I must say. Mayor, I realize that your preliminary mayor's management report isn't due until January. But how about a little preview of your uh, self-assessment? How's the job going? What have been, your, in your mind, your greatest accomplishments, your biggest frustrations, disappointments? I think the biggest accomplishments are putting together a team. Uh, In the end, the city has 300,000 employees. Its budget's $47 billion. The mayor doesn't do any of the things. The mayor is the one that attracts people, promotes them, gets them to work together, sets the ethical standards, uh, adjudicates when there are disagreements. And I think anybody that studied city government would say that we have as good, if not a better team than anybody's ever put together, no matter what agency you pick. I've had the luxury since I was self-financed and didn't really have a lot of union endorsements. In fact, I had one. Um, Didn't have a lot of newspaper endorsements. I had three Spanish papers and the Daily News. Um, And um, so I didn't have to pay back. And there's the old saying, you take the king's shilling, you become the king's man. I think that unfortunately really is true. And I don't have a good solution for the disparity between those that can be self-financed and those that are not. But if you are self-financed, you have the luxury of going out and just looking for the best people. I picked a guy, Nat Leventhal, who uh, had worked in the Koch administration and then ran Lincoln Center, and put him in charge of picking the best people. And uh, we really had a phenomenal number of applicants for every job. Uh, We've had very little turnover, but we still are able to attract the best and the brightest. It amazes me that people have the confidence that I'm going to get reelected to come and take a job with a year left to go in the administration, and we can have the pick of the country. But I think first is is picking the best people. Uh, Second, I would argue, uh, accomplishment is getting control of the school system. Uh, The school system for many... You know, I think, in all fairness, the people at work there are well-meaning, and a lot of them are very competent, and a lot of them work hard. But the school system was this independent body that answered to nobody. So, like any organization, it starts to become uh, its main purpose in life is perpetuating itself rather than providing a service. There's no check and balance. There's no demand for accountability. And uh, getting control of it, we can change that. We're not going to fix all the school system problems overnight, but we are making progress there. And I picked the right guy, Joel Klein, to run it. Um, I think uh, bringing, making, delivering city services uh, in tough budget times, we have every reason to be proud. Crime is down to record lows. When I came into office under the Giuliani administration, it had come down a lot. And with the slower economy, everybody would have predicted that it would go up. In fact, it has continued to go down. We're heading for the third year in a row with below 600 murders. To put that in perspective, 10 years ago or thereabouts, it was 2,200 murders a year. 
And so, and that's true of all crime categories. The streets are safer, not just from crime, but from, for example, traffic deaths. Uh, if you go back to 1912, that would be the last year we had this number of traffic deaths. And I might remind you that in 1912, uh, most cars were pulled by horses. So it really is accomplishment. Deaths by fire are down to a 75-year low. So there are those kinds of things. Uh, and then I think um, it's uh, taking people through a very tough economic time. If you remember, when I came into office, there was still smoke coming out of the World Trade Center site. And after that terrible tragedy, the general zeitgeist was that businesses and people would leave this city. And that's not happened. And you can see that in the low commercial vacancy rate. It's the lowest of any major city in this country. You can see it in residential real estate prices in all five boroughs. There's a housing boom that is just no, nobody can believe the prices people are getting in, in every single borough, in every neighborhood. Uh, people have a confidence in the future. And so helping to lead through that time, and I don't think that I deserve the credit for it, but I think I've picked people who do deserve the credit. And I think those are the accomplishments in terms of of disappointments, you know, you always, number one, you have to learn when you go into government not to say things that you shouldn't have said, but you really should say, and you sort of, the next day you see a picture on the front page of one of the tabs, and you say, why on earth did I ever say that? My press secretary wants to shoot me. Um, but I think there's a little bit of a learning curve of how to deal with, uh, in a new industry, new ethics, new different kind of press. Uh, and there's also the problem that you can't do things as quickly as you can in the private sector. The, great, the, the plus is that you can change the world, particularly if New York City does it. You can look at the smoking ban, which really is being picked up in many places around the world. But yeah, it, it, it is very tough to get things done, but the rewards are, are great. So that's a three-minute answer to your five-minute question. <laughs> Well, in terms of school reform, uh, after you eliminate social promotion, which uh, I congratulate you for, what's next? Classroom overcrowding, improving well, the city's high schools, we, we firing bad teachers? The, there's some things that you can do and some things that require a, uh, uh, the uh, main union, the United Federation of Teachers, to agree to, which you may or may not be able to get done, and that's a, always a constant battle. The UFT wants to protect its members. That's what its job is. Um, in the past, they've had a lot of say in running the school system. I don't think that that's appropriate. I think that it should be the management of the school system, and nobody suggests that the PBA should run the police department. I don't think the UFT should run the, uh, the school system. I do think there are some very smart people, including the union leaders, and we should mm -hmm. listen to them. But I think there is a responsibility of management to actually make the decisions. We have uh, an old school system. The average school is something like 60 years old or some, maybe it's 40 years, some, some many decades old. Those are wearing out, need to be replaced. We have a much bigger uh, school system uh, in terms of student body than we have seats for, so there's overcrowding. Before you can fix either of those problems, you have to get school construction costs in line, which we've done. We brought that down by a third. You have to get the money. Uh, the city has increased its capital budget to pay for schools from $4 billion over the next five years to $6.5 billion. We've asked the state for $6.5 billion, which I hope we will get. That will, over a period of five-plus years, let you build the classrooms. We have downsized the bureaucracy and turned offices into classroom spaces. But anybody 
anybody that thinks that we can reduce the size of classes dramatically until you build out just isn't being realistic, and that does take time. It is also the problem that we don't have the money to go and to have lots more teachers, and we would like to be able to pay the teachers we have more. We would like to be able to attract math and science teachers, which is the one area we've had difficulty in doing it. It's amazing. The number of teachers who retired this year what literally was half of what happened the year before. So people that say the teachers aren't happy, I'm sure not everybody is, but I think a lot of teachers really want to be part of a changing school system and making a difference. And so um, teachers are not retiring or, or going elsewhere in the ways they were before. And we had something like 75,000 applicants for 5,000 places this year. So anybody that says this isn't a job that will attract people, they're wrong. I did meet a teacher today who complained her car was falling apart and she, um, you know, and she couldn't feed herself and it wasn't enough money. And that may very well be true, but we can only do so much. So uh, we'd like to change that, getting rid of teachers who aren't competent. Uh, we don't even try that. My, one of the things that I'm trying to get done is to get rid of teachers who have, uh, we cannot put them back in the classroom. They were convicted of a sex offense, they, the arbitrator reinstated them. Nobody suggests we should put them back in a the classroom. They sit in a room, mm-hmm. and we pay them, and they can do that until they retire. And, you know, I'm trying to get the union to agree in the next round of contract changes to let us do merit pay, let us get rid of teachers like that. Um, the solution to the quality of the teacher problem uh, and, you know, no matter how good they are, you'd always like them to be better, is the following. If you take a look at uh, the union contract, the key to it is seniority. The key to every union contract is really seniority. And based on seniority, teachers can pick the school that they work in and the class they teach. So invariably what happens is we spend more money per capita in the wealthier neighborhoods in the city and less money per capita in the poorer neighborhoods in the city because those teachers with more seniority make more money, they pick the better schools to go to, and so we have to take the least experienced teachers, who may be great teachers and will grow into great teachers, but we send the least experienced teachers to the schools where the problems are the greatest. Mm -hmm. And we probably can't change that in the contract. What uh, Joel Klein has come up with, and he deserves all the credit for this, is two basic programs, or three maybe, that we are using to address the problem that you're not going to change of where the teachers go. One is, in the end, it is management that matters. So in a school, the line manager is called a principal, and we have a leadership academy we've raised. Caroline Kennedy has helped. We've raised about $75 million to train new principals. And over the next five years or so, we really will train a very significant percentage of the 1,300-odd principals that we have. Better management always will get you better performance. Two, we have coaches to teach specialties. They go around and help teachers keep up with new methods and that sort of thing. And three, to help those uh, young teachers who are put in the very toughest schools, a mentoring program where we attract senior teachers to go and to take responsibility for 10 or 15, whatever the number works out to be, that we can afford teachers and give them the help. Because you are going to have the younger teachers, the less experienced teachers in the tougher schools. 
take that as a given, you're not likely to change it. Then the question is, what do you do about it? And I think the Klein's answer to that is something that we can afford. It, uh, we can do it under the union contracts. The courts haven't tried to stop us. Um, and the next big thing to work on is the, the fact that the, the test scores, uh, it's going to take a while to improve them. Uh, ending social promotion isn't the only solution. What do you do after two years if the child still can't pass the test and we have a program and in the end you're going to have to promote them or move them into special ed because you don't want a 16-year-old or in a third grade it would be very disruptive and it doesn't do the 16-year-old or any good either. Uh, but we have to find some solutions to those problems. You've been called the first CEO mayor. How does managing a workforce of up to 350000 a budget of $49 billion and a population of $8 million, compare and contrast with managing Bloomberg LP, a company which employs 8,000 people? Well, I've always said the big difference between government and business is that um, business is a dog-eat-dog world and government is just the opposite. Um, <laughs> I mean, th- there are some differences. You know, once you get to a certain scale... A good, good managers after a certain scale understand they can't do it themselves and they have to delegate. And I think my management style has always been one of delegation. I pick people based on instinct a lot more than where they went to school. I've never asked anybody that I've interviewed what their party is, their marital status, uh, religion, ethnicity. I mean, none of that stuff to me matters. Can you do the job? And managers just have an instinct to, uh, as to who is good and who isn't. And then if you make a mistake, try to work with them. And if you can't work with them, then make a change. You're, your first, you know, this old trade is adage that your first sale is your best sale when you made a mistake. Um, but but I, I once went to a fire, uh, the first fire I went to, and it was fascinating. I stood around. I was in the way of all of the men trying to fight the fire. Everybody had to rush over and point up to the building that's fire. I said, yes, that's a fire. And you got that one right. Um, and then I realized, you know, the worst thing I could do would be to go to a fire. Now, there are times if it's a big fire, you have to go and have a press conference. And I would, of course, go to the hospital whenever anybody gets injured. But getting in the way and trying to do it all yourself, I'm not the fire commissioner. I'm not the police commissioner. I'm not the chancellor. Uh, And I shouldn't be. That's not my job. And we have some great people, all of whom I hope are an awful lot smarter than I am and better able to do it. I I never wanted to hire anybody that wasn't smarter than me. And um, that's my great objective. And if I can do that, then there'd be a lot of credit to go around for everybody. Okay. As you know, the city is facing a $3 billion budget deficit in the next fiscal year, starting July 1st. How do you plan to close the gap? What cuts can we expect? Well, what's happened... Assuming you're not raising taxes. uh, I don't think you could raise taxes and you don't want to. Um, I think that the taxes in the city are as high as the public can tolerate. You've got to pay for services. I think there's no... People are unrealistic if they want something for nothing. Our workforce wants to get paid more and people want us to have more employees to do more things and somebody's got to pay for it. Federal government never gives you money for operating kinds of things. The state has its budget problems. They've been generous, but Never is, we, we're never satisfied. We never get enough. Um, what you have to do is find ways to do more with less. We have cut three-odd billion dollars out of the city's expense budget, and we're in the process of cutting another billion dollars out of the expense budget, which will take us from a three-odd billion dollar deficit down to a two-odd billion dollar deficit. And then with some state aid and some praying, you always hope that the economy improves. And, you know, these are projections. You go out and you say, what's our deficit going to be next year? I can tell you pretty much our expenses. 
I can't tell you our revenues Mm -hmm. because you can control expenses. You can't control the revenues. So if a terrible catastrophe were to hit the city or a national economy were to hit the city, or if real estate prices stopped going up, all those are bad things. On the other hand, there are lots of good things going on. Jobs are coming back to the city. People want to invest here. Real, our transfer, real estate transfer taxes are running ahead of projections. Wall Street sort of not going quite as well as we projected, but it could come back. The stock market seems to behave okay in spite of lots of problems and with oil prices and everything. So I think that's the answer. But our biggest problem is that our pension costs and health care costs for our municipal employees and our Medicaid expenses have gone up by $6 billion a year in the last five years. And so we've got to find $6 billion in extra revenue or in spending less on other things to balance the budget. And what's different from New York City, and it's a very healthy thing, what's different from New York City from the state or the federal government is we have to balance our budget on a cash basis at the end of the year. The state has to adopt a balanced budget. The federal government just prints money. New York City has... They do. I mean, they, can, they can run deficits. We cannot. And it's the fiscal discipline that came out of the 1970s is something that we should, and I will try to get the legislature to enact into law, keep it going, because it expires in about 2008 when the Big Mac bonds really would have expired. And that discipline will keep us from getting into as big a problem as we got into the 70s where we walked away from all the services and the city fell apart. You don't expect any help from the state in terms of picking up Medicaid costs? Well, we would like to do it. What, Medicaid is a, a strange animal. In New York and in California, the federal government pick up 50%. Um, in New York, unlike California, the city picks up 25%, the state picks up 25%. In California, the state would pick up the whole thing. In other states, the federal government picks up up to 70 or even more percent. And the reason for that is when they passed the Medicaid bill, the deal was those big states who would probably use it more, the federal government said, well, we'll pay less there, and that was the price of admission to get Medicaid going. Last year, the federal government was willing to give us a little bit of break, an extra 2.5%, I think it was, this year. that We're not going to get that. Um, I would like the state to pick up more. I don't want to have fewer people signed up for Medicaid, because if you have somebody that goes to the hospital and needs medical help, Unless you are prepared, which we are not, unless you are prepared to say we're not going to treat you, then if you don't have Medicaid or any kind of coverage, we pay 100 cents on the dollar, we being the city. If you do have Medicaid, we pay 25 cents on the dollar. So our Medicaid costs go up. They're an expense to us, which I'd like not to have, but it may very well be better than the alternatives. We also have in this city both private and public hospitals that like Medicaid patients. They, in this day and age, pay the bills. So, you know, I'm sort of both sides of that issue. But our big problem is we're living way beyond our means with the pension costs and the health care costs for the municipal employees and Medicaid. Uh, Speaking of doing more with less, I believe you've told your appointees to the MTA board not to vote for a fair increase if and until the system can be streamlined and the MTA can learn to do more with less, as you have in governing New York City. What can you, your appointees, and the MTA do to avert a uh, fair hike? Because I understand the MTA votes in December on whether to raise the subway and bus fares. Well, con- I, con- I, don't know, I don't know whether they'll vote a fair increase. Um, I, our, my, I have four representatives on the board, mm-hmm. and they will vote against it. 
um, because I've not seen the MTA try to do more with less. I think when you have, I don't know, they have a six and a half million dollar, a billion dollar budget, um, you're telling me you can't cut, you know, 10 percent. Anybody that's got a budget that size or I don't know how many tens of thousands of employees, you can always do more with less. Now, the, the uh, TWU, which is the main union, the Transport Workers Union, uh, you know, anything but cutting people and even downsizing through attrition they don't want. And that's the backdrop for all of these union contracts and all of the negotiations. You always see government never economizing because of the power of the workforce who are voters, who um, uh, support uh, through campaign donations, um, who um, have access to the newspapers. And so we all talk about economies, but I don't. I think you'd be hard pressed to find any any point in federal, state, or city government, any place other than maybe the last three years, where they've really stopped the growth or cut back. Now, when you have a calamity like you did in the 70s with the control period, if you go back then, we lost control of our streets. We stopped going after the bad guys. We stopped putting out the fires. We fired 20% of the police officers. We fired 20% of the fire department. We fired 20% of the teachers. We closed a few hospitals. We did things that made, excuse me, made the city intolerable to live in. Um, and you, can't, you don't want to go back to doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's, it's very hard to convince everybody that there isn't this unlimited amount of money that we can always, through shell games, find a ways to pay more. And the municipal workforce in the city, as in the state, as in the federal government, is a powerful lobby. Okay. You've been quoted as saying that anybody who thinks we have extra money isn't facing reality. Um, it's been widely reported that the $1.4 billion West Side Stadium for the Jets and the Olympics will cost the city $300 million. So assuming that the city council approves your West Side rezoning plan within the next two months, where will you find the $300 million? Well, if we don't build things like, and it's not just the, the West Side, if we don't build the big projects, we will not have any ways of growing ourselves out of our economic problems. The $300 million that the city would put into the West Side, uh, the stadium part of it, uh, is... 300 million, number one, we'd probably do that anyways. Nobody's going to build over the rail yards unless we put the platform. Uh, just no, no private builder would. And nobody's going to go over there and build unless you cover the rail yards because it's just too much of an eyesore. So you can think of that as an expense, whether we built apartment buildings or office buildings or parks or anything over the rail yards, we're going to have to spend that. But that's capital money in any case. You go and you borrow that kind of money. Mm-hmm. And the independent budget office, which is this watchdog agency, using much more conservative numbers than we think are justified, but maybe just take a look at the conservative numbers. They think over the 30 years that the bonds would be outstanding, it would make the city over $900 million. Our prognosis is that it would actually do a lot better than that. But even using their numbers, nobody questions the fact that the West Side Stadium, whether you like stadiums or not, just as a catalyst for the West Side, as a catalyst to get conventions here, as, as a, a, a place where, I mean, this is a city where we have 8 million people and we can't seat more than 30,000 p- people in any place. I mean, you just can't 
you have to have these kinds of facilities. I think the uh, stadium that Bruce Ratton is building over the Atlantic Yards in Brooklyn will be another phenomenal thing. The objections to the stadium is some people don't like the architecture. I can't argue with that. Some people like one architect. Some people like another. But they don't. Some people don't like sports and say there'll be lots of traffic. Well, you know, there's lots of traffic around Yankee Stadium. There's lots of traffic. At least they used to be around Shea Stadium. Uh, I hope there is again. Um, you know, nobody suggests we shouldn't have a World Series because what? it ties up the traffic. Traffic is a good thing, and the Jets only play on Sundays, so spare me. This is an area without any traffic. You can go for five blocks without getting a cup of coffee. You can go for five blocks without seeing a taxi, I mean, in, for 20 minutes. We need these kinds of projects, and they are done with capital funds and they will generate the tax revenues and the jobs. The most important thing for the whole West Side and the reason why the convention center, which doesn't work without the stadium, the expansion would just the expansion without it is marginally helpful. It is having something that will get the big conventions to come here and they need a big floor plate in that place. It's jobs. If you go to the Jets games, they spell J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. This is jobs, jobs, jobs. And it's jobs for the immigrant communities that come here. From an economic development point of view, we have two missions. One is to train our children to be able to hold the jobs of tomorrow. And two is to attract the kinds of jobs to this city that the current adult population can fill. Now, some of the current adult population can work as lawyers and as accountants and as Wall Street people and... Uh, you know, those kinds of jobs where intellectual capital is a very important part. Some people work in jobs because their English isn't great or they don't have a, a lot of education, don't have some of the advantages some of the rest of us were lucky enough to have. Uh, they need jobs in uh, um, uh, restaurants and hotels and transportation. Those are good jobs with pensions and benefits. The problem is they get laid off in the off season. And if you had a convention hotel uh, business here throughout the year, they would have much better jobs. And so it's throughout the whole city. I, that, this afternoon, the mayor of Hoboken, New Jersey, stopped by. Biggest fan for the West Side because his people work here. Sure. And that's... But public policy theory holds that development follows transportation. So could we make do with an extended seven line and oh, an well, expanded nobody. Javits Center if need be, if, if it came down to that? Well, you, the, the, tell that to the people that don't have jobs today. Mm -hmm. You know, you say 20 years from now, if you still need a job, I'm going to do something for you. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think it is true. You cannot go and develop the West Side without expending, extending the number seven line. Uh, for those of you that uh, are familiar with Canary Wharf, it is this enormous development on the Thames in London. And the Reichman family, a Canadian family, had a dream. And they couldn't have been more right. They built this fantastic ex group of office buildings, good architecture, great facilities, everything. And the British government said they'd provide a subway line there. The British government reneged. The Reichmans went bankrupt. The people that bought it out of bankruptcy got the British government to build the line, and they made a fortune. People have learned that lesson. So mm -hmm. we do have to extend the seven line. But even if you extend the seven line, if you have the railroad yards sitting there, nobody's going to, to build. I, Amanda Burden, who runs our um, uh, city planning, uh, her estimate is it's up to two decades later, the development. Uh, if you don't have something to get people over there now. Nobody wants to build an office building where there's nobody. 
So the quicker you can get 24-7 people on the streets, restaurants to open, stores to open, taxi cabs to go there, the more attractive it is to developers. If you build a building where people can't get there and can't get back and can't go out and get a sandwich, they're just not going to build it. Mm -hmm. I've read that Paris is the current front runner for the Olympics in 2012. I don't know if it's true or not. How do you see the likelihood of, of New York actually winning the bid next well, July. Number one, we need the whole West Side, which really the, the stadium or convention center expansion is, is the key part of it. Without that, you would not get the uh, Olympics. I don't think there's any question about that. Nobody would believe that we would ever build it. And to the people that run the Olympics and make the decisions, it's these grand things that give them the showcase which is what they want. And, you know, we're here. We can't go and uh, do anything other than um, uh, we, 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 we can't demand things from the IOC, from the International Olympic Committee. We've got to ask. Um, I think if you do get the stadium, we have a very decent chance. I don't know how to put the numbers down. 50-50, 45-55, 55-45, some number like that. And the reason we do a few things, number one, we're the world's greatest venue. Uh, we have a, the, the media exposure for your sport, whatever your sport is, would be greater here. The ability to raise money for your sport would be greater than here. We have our own Olympic Village here, 24/7, 365 days a week, uh, a year. Um, this is you can pick any sport that the Olympics have. This year I went over to um, let's see if I can't couldn't talk to some of the IOC members, and there were 202 countries participating in the Olympics in Athens this year. We have children from 199 out of those 202 in our public school system. So, you know, and, and you went to an event, and the only time there was a lot of cheering and the stands were full, basically, was when there was somebody from Greece competing in the pool, on, in the, on, on the field, in the ring, or whatever it is. Why? Because it's the hometown crowd that basically fills most of these seats. Well, in Athens in the summer, number one, there's only Greeks that live in Athens. It's not a very cosmopolitan city. And number two, they go away in, in August on vacation. Paris, the same thing. It's Parisians that live there generally. You know, it's a, they have some internationalization, but nothing compared to New York. Nobody does. Forty percent of the people that live here were born outside the United States. Nobody remotely comes close to that. Here, people don't go away in August, and no matter what the sport is, we will fill both sides of the stands with people from those <laughs> countries cheering madly. That's what the Olympics are all about. <laughs> I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about personal issues. What advice would you give someone like yourself, John Corzine or Arnold Schwarzenegger, a person who has risen to the top of another profession about running for political office for the first time? And do the three of you represent a new breed of politician and a new trend in, in politics? Well, I don't think money does. I mean, if you take a look this time, I think there were 22 millionaires who ran for Congress and only one won. So, you know, you can make a big deal out of it. I think the great thing of being self-financed is the independence, not the fact mm -hmm. that you can spend more. And, you know, you'd think the next time I run a year from now, I won't have to spend, if I have to spend $75 million again, I got big problems. Um, <laughs> not in paying for it, thank you. I can do that. <laughs> Or I think, uh, seriously. Or, or I can float you alone. All right, thank you. Now, Corzine loves me because I took him <laughs> off the front pages for spending. Um, I, I think my advice to anybody would be it is a unique opportunity, public service, to make a difference. And if you 
uh, have, particularly if you come out of the private sector, where you've had an opportunity to learn a lot of very competitive, um, accountability, action, results-oriented kind of world. Going into government, you really can do something. The downside is there is, a, at least at the beginning, an interest in your personal life, which in all fairness to the press, they've basically left me alone after the first brief periods, although I haven't fed it, so maybe that's a little bit of that, too. Um, I just don't think it's their business what I do in my personal sure. life, and so you know, I just don't talk about it. And you can't have it both, you can't have it both ways. You, you, you can't use the press to push your personal life and then object when they go after you. So I don't have a lot of sympathy for movie stars that they don't like it when they get bad stories. If you want to be in the press, you're in the press, and that, that's what they do. Um, but you better have a thick skin. They go after everything you've ever done. And if you've done a lot of things in life, I can always find things that taken out of context or standing alone will embarrass you or make you look ridiculous. For example, if you ran General Motors, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of employees they have, it's got to be a disgruntled employee in the middle of General Motors. They'll find somebody and that'll be on the front page of the paper. So you're going to have to have a very strong stomach, but you got to, it's like, I liken it to the job of going out and raising money for your favorite charity. Nobody suggests that it's easy to look somebody in the eye and ask them for money. But would you, do you care more about the cause than the um, annoyance or uncomfortableness of doing the job of asking for money? Mm -hmm. And some people care enough to go out and do that job, and some people don't. But, you know, Schwarzenegger, I've met him a couple times. He's certainly a colorful character. He's got a unique opportunity. California in big trouble. It's tough times for everybody. Uh, Corzine uh, certainly worked his way up in the Senate, uh, became as, you know, for a freshman senator, did very well in the Democratic Party. I think they will miss him, although Chuck Schumer is, is just an aggressive, and I think that was a great choice for them. Um, and he'll do a good job in terms of being the fundraiser for the Democratic Party, at least for the Senate side. Uh, but it's um, the, ex the executive branch of government is something that I think is the most appealing part of it. I, I, today I spent part of my day interviewing judges, and one of the things you talk about with them is can you be independent? Well, if I were up on the bench, I'd want to decide who was guilty and innocent and tell them what they should do. I would make a lousy judge. That's not what a judge is supposed to do. You're supposed to be independent. And the legislature, it's a long period of time, and it's very hard to marry results to the law that you pass. There are long time frames and so many different influences. The executive, particularly in something like the city of New York, um, if I said tomorrow morning I want Fifth Avenue to go northbound rather than southbound, everybody would wake up at 6 in the morning and there'd be a cop in every corner. The signs would have been changed. And, you know. And that's, but seriously, that is one of the real problems of uh, an executive going into government that I've found. And it's one of maybe the key differences between government and, uh, and the commercial side. And that is, in, it has to do with succession, if you think about it. In business, when the head person leaves, everybody moves up. In government, when the head person leaves, all the senior people move out. And so in business, the loyalty tends to be to the organization, and in government, it tends to be towards the chief executive a lot more. And so in business, you can get people to tell you when you don't have any clothes on, and it's very hard to create the culture in government to say, look, if I'm doing something wrong, 
tell me. Mm -hmm. And one of my key criteria in picking people is I want people that will tell me when I'm making a mistake or when they think I'm making a mistake. I may overrule them. In the end, it's my responsibility. I was elected mayor, and I'm going to stand up there, and the public will judge me next November, um, November 8th, for any of you that want to save it on the calendar. Um, but it, it's it, there was there's always the in, in government. Well, the chief executive can do no wrong. We must spin it so that uh, we never make a mistake. When I first put together the new mayor's management report, which you referred to, uh, the woman who's phenomenally competent is running it said, "Now, is there any information you want left out?" And I said, "What do you mean? Why would you leave any information out?" Well, in sometimes in the past. Uh, many, many years ago in some administration, maybe information was left out. And I said, you put the numbers out and don't show them to me. Just put them out. I don't ever want anybody to think that I manipulated the numbers. They are what they are. I hope I'm proud of them, but you can't face a problem and fix it if people aren't willing to tell you. And that's a struggle all the time that you didn't find out It's not micromanaging. It's having somebody tell you when you've got problems. And I always say, if we've got a problem, I'm the one that should be out there and announce that we have failed at something or something didn't go well, regardless of whose fault. And my job is to take the blame. And when it goes right, it's the commissioner's job or the deputy mayor's job or whatever to be out there and take the credit. And that's how I attract those people and keep them happy and working hard. The basic way government works is the reverse, that that's not the case, and so fighting that all the time. But it sounds like, listening to you, that a second Bloomberg administration would look pretty much like the first Bloomberg administration, unlike the uh, second Bush administration, which seems to be turning over wholesale. Well, I don't know in the Bush administration how much of that is the people who've done it for four years, don't want to do it for eight. And nobody would leave an administration in the last year, sort of disloyal, the president, governor, mayor, Mm -hmm. whatever is running for office. So if somebody has said enough is enough, you would find that out on November 9th. Uh, assuming you win. If you lose, they would tell, they'll tell you they were going to stay with you all the time anyways. <laughs> but, and, I, and I would think, number one, I would think there'd be some turnover. And number two, I'm not sure that's bad. Mm. I mean, I think turnover is good. You know, the great challenge in a second administration is going to be to keep people saying we can do things, we can change it. And there's the expression, they go native in, in anything. They just become part of the problem and they, they, they've learned. What, one of the big problems is the longer you're in a job, the more you learn what can't be done. Hmm. And uh, you may get more experience, but you learn, you know, the, the problems become insurmountable. A new person comes in and those aren't insurmountable problems. In my company, I did something that you can't do here. I took all my senior managers and I moved them around, just gave them each other's jobs overnight without any warning whatsoever. And it, it was amazing. It was, it was a new life for every one of them. They, had, they were energized. They, they realized the other guy's problems. You know, I always joke, I can raise your kids easily. I can tell you exactly what to do. Mine are a little more complex. Well, when I get over and, you know, if we swap kids, maybe it would not be quite so easy. It's I, I, I think it, we'll have some turnover and, uh, um, and we'll have an opportunity to do new things. Mm-hmm. Also, incidentally, if people around the country aren't coming and trying to hire away our senior management then I've probably picked the wrong managers. That's a nice thing to have happen. 
So uh, what would be some of those new things? What would be the priorities um, in, a, in a second Bloomberg administration? Well, the, the blocking and tackling are to continue to keep crime coming down, but there are some other things that you can do. We will be only partway through reforming a school system. We consider it as, as a success that we have brought down crime in school by 50%. Let me tell you, 50% is still an enormous number. When you have assaults in schools and kids bringing box cutters and knives, this isn't good. And we're making progress, but it's a very complex uh, school system, and our, our society is, a, is, a, is one where uh, we have, uh, you know, you say, let's write a letter home to Johnny's parents. Well, the problem is Johnny's parents can speak any one of 170 different languages, and uh, we have an awful lot of kids who don't have two parents. As a matter of fact, we have tens of thousands of kids who don't have any parents, and so there isn't somebody to write a letter to. Uh, it, it, we have a long ways to go, but I think continuing to do do that. Um, the homeless problem in this city has been a problem for, for decades. Nobody's ever been willing to address it, and we have a unique opportunity. Today, I think the public and the advocates and the courts are all willing to look and say, okay, let's talk about our problems, and let's not sweep it in under, the, uh, under the carpet. In the past, there were some subjects that were just taboo. You couldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Let's go and look. Where are the problems? And if it's all in one ethnic, one geographical neighborhood, if it tends to be higher in one ethnicity, let's go look for the root causes and fix it and not say it doesn't exist. Uh, and uh, we've uh, said we're going to try to end homelessness in five years. And Linda Gibbs, my uh, commissioner for uh, homeless services, has got some great ideas. And we're going. We're trying to put accountability in. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with asking people, if they are able-bodied, to do some work. I think you, you, you should encourage home ownership. That creates uh, an interest in the community and a willingness to be responsible. Uh, so there's the homeless uh, problem. We have foster kids. We have 22,000 kids in foster care, and we're so proud of that. Why? Because it's down from 25,000 a year or so ago. We're going in the right direction. But these are 22,000 children who were taken from their parents because they were in such dysfunctional families, the children weren't safe. Uh, we have an awful lot of court orders that we uh, work under. Uh, we have, the, I would argue, the best corporation counsel any city has ever had and we've ever had in Michael Cardozo. And we keep convincing the courts that we are serious, that we are responsible, and that we should be in charge of the system since we are the elected officials and more and more the courts are listening to that. Still a lot of them, long ways to go, but they're those kinds of things. And then there's also this, the, the public moves around, its needs change, and the most difficult thing in government is to get change implemented. Nobody wants change because it's scary. Um, you can demagogue against it. Um, it, uh, is, it gives you great theater for the front pages of the newspapers. Even though the editorial boards are with you saying make change, that what do they put on the front page of the paper? It's, you know, the one person when you made the change that it, it helped a thousand people. One didn't work. That's the person that gets the publicity set. makes it hard to do. Innovation, by definition, is not knowing where you're going, not knowing what it's going to look like, not knowing who's going to use it, not knowing who's going to pay for it. Um, and in government, it's very hard to do something without the specificity in the future that is impossible to, uh, to, to, to arrive at. And um, you've got to have the courage of your convictions and stand up. And if they pick at you on the steps of City Hall... Uh, my strategy has always been I walk up and shake their hands, and they have these signs, kill Bloomberg. They drop the signs. They ask for an autograph for their kid. They want a picture. 
tell me they voted for me the last time, will again, and then when I go inside, I hear him pick up the signs and start screaming, kill Bloomberg again. Comes with the territory, but I'd rather have him on the steps of City Hall than not on the steps of City Hall. Disarm, disarm with charm. Uh, that is right? exactly right. Um, first question, most politicians want to leave a legacy in history. With all of the outstanding accomplishments in your career, what is the legacy you wish to leave for New York and the nation? I think if you go back and look at Giuliani's legacy, and Dinkins deserves a little bit of credit, too, because the, 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 the drop in crime started really at the end of the Dinkins administration with the Safe Street, City Safe Streets program when we took a lot more money and started hiring a lot of cops. And I think Giuliani did a great job in bringing crime down, the broken windows theory and the ability to co- willingness to collect statistics in the ComStat system and use them brought crime down dramatically. But the real legacy of the Giuliani administration to me was that he changed the perception that high crime was a necessary evil in a central city, a big city, a diverse city. And today, no mayor is going to be able to survive, no police commissioner could survive um, if crime goes up. There's a limit to how much you maybe can bring it down, and it can fluctuate a little bit. Uh, We have, for example, one, I think it's... One, the, the, the crime on the subway system, I forget the numbers, it's so low you really can't measure it. So if you go from one incident to two incidents, all of a sudden the story in the paper is up 100%. But the truth of the matter is we have brought crime down so low the public expects low crime. And that's important because it will force future administrations to focus on that. I would like to leave a legacy perhaps that the public expects good schools for all of our children, good public schools, because there is this perception that they just can't reach every child, and um, it's just something we have to learn to live with, and you run away from the good schools. If you go back to the 70s, people, you can look at architecture, and it tells you about what people's aspirations or expectations for the future are. In the 70s, we built buildings where there was an atrium in the middle, and uh, you came in through a few doors that they could control access to, and you never left the building. And it was because everybody was trying to wall out the outside. People put up all these terrible gates over their windows and houses, bars, and that sort of thing. Today, the great architects of the world all want to work here, and every one of these new buildings are trying to bring the outside in. I was at uh, the Museum of Modern Art the other day. That certainly does it. My company's building, a Cesar Pelle building is doing it. The Hearst building is going up and doing it. Time Warner has tried to do it. You know, opening things up. That tells you the public has the expectation of better times, and I'd like to leave that, uh, that just the change in expectation. You'll never finish the job of bringing down crime. You'll never finish the job of improving the school system. But if the public demands from their elected officials results in those two things then I think that the government will continue to improve our lot in life. As the Republican mayor of a city with 78% of your constituents voted against the Republican leadership of the nation, how do you reconcile our views and beliefs on issues such as uh, pro-choice, gun control, funding for anti-terrorism efforts, et cetera, with those of the Bush administration? Well, I've said repeatedly I don't agree with – I mean, my, my – I would describe myself uh, – oh, there's no question I am – I've been pro-choice and a big supporter of pro-choice organizations. I think 
I'm in favor of um, gay rights. I don't think it's anybody's business who's with whom. Um, I'm in favor of um, uh, gun control. Uh, I'm opposed to the death penalty, not on philosophical grounds, but just because I don't think we can ever be 100% sure that we don't execute an, an innocent person. And murder is murder, whether the state does it or not. So I'd rather reach into my pocket and come up with more taxes and put people away forever if that's what we got to do. But I don't think. But there are those kinds of things. And, you know, I, I don't agree with the Bush administration on a lot of those things. Having said that, I, I also, which maybe some of the audience doesn't want to hear, I, I thought Ed Koch um, uh, ha had a pretty good argument that um, ter fighting terrorism is one of the most important. Well, you know, you can boo. I, I had a meeting this morning with the defense minister of Israel. And, you know, when you're attacked all the time, there's no question that terrorists in this world have a more difficult time than they did before. I, not in favor of the war or against the war or whatever. I think we've got to be very careful to make sure we've asked our young men and women to go overseas and fight for us. Um, and uh, we cannot make the mistake that we made after Vietnam, where the people who risked their lives because we sent them there came back and were ashamed to tell anybody about what they did. I think that that's one of the things we, uh, is a blight on our record. Uh, no matter whether you're in favor of it or not, these are the, 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 the soldiers that men and women who, some, some come back. If, if you want to boo, go and, and meet some of the parents. And it's fascinating. It's, I don't know what I'd ever say. But, but having said that, the, 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 keep in mind, the city, the job I have is not a partisan job. LaGuardia supposedly said, although I will admit I didn't hear him, um, he said there's no Republican or Democratic way to pick up the garbage, and I think that is true. I've always been in favor of nonpartisan elections. I think that a lot of cities have done it. I couldn't convince the voters of it, but uh, I, I think that um, I got more Democratic votes last time than my opponent did. Um, so I think the public is a lot smarter. They want to know, can I keep bringing crime down and improve the schools and that kind of stuff? And uh, can I make this city a better city? And if that's the case, they will vote for me. And if they don't, they won't. And uh, there's a handful of people where party really matters. But New Yorkers are much smarter than that. I hope. <laughs> well, certainly this audience is, right? Um, two quick questions. You once said that adulation is great. Are you getting enough love from your, from your, from your fellow New Yorkers, or are we, are we just giving you service? Um, anybody that says that they don't want more love ought to see a shrink. I think it's a... <laughs> Look, you love to have people say good things about you, but the only poll that matters is the one that's going to take place in this city next November 8th. And also, I think you've got to be realistic. You can't make tough decisions and have people love you. But when they get to the polling booth, they can say, I might, you know, this guy's made some tough decisions. I'm not sure I'm in favor of all of them, but I want a leader. And we live in a democracy, not a republic. You don't put everything up to a referendum every time. What you do is you pick somebody whose values you respect, and then you say, well, they'll go out there and they'll look at the facts and they'll make a considered decision. And I won't agree with them all the time, but I'd rather have that than somebody that can't make a decision or makes decisions for reasons that are not in the public's interest. Mm -hmm. Quickly, what does your future hold after your time as mayor is over? Will you return to Bloomberg LP? Or, no, I, or I will not venture? go back to the company. I've picked people who are doing a better job than I could. At least I hope they are. I think they are. We've done, the company's doing very well. Its employees and customers are better off with the change. 
and I have no interest in any other job in government whatsoever. I've got the best job in government, period, end of story. Uh, my, what I'd like to do is eventually I will sell the company because if I don't, my estate will have to. And um, I want to run a foundation. I think of uh, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates have done a great job. I, I, I've watched uh, the Gateses, and I don't agree with uh, my, some of my priorities aren't exactly the same as theirs, but they have really gotten involved in philanthropy on a scale the world's never seen before. Uh, hopefully, my foundation won't be quite as big, but it will be very substantial. Um, I would uh, love to see my daughters come and work uh, with me. I don't know if they will, uh, but uh, one's in college, one's in graduate school. The people I've worked with, Patty Harris and a whole group of people, which everybody in the nonprofit world knows, uh, those are, would be the people I would work with. And uh, going out and, and spending the rest of my life uh, giving it all away would be great. Somebody once said that the ultimate in financial planning is to bounce the check to the under taker. So I'm going to try to do that. Thanks for listening. 92nd Street Y online media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more audio and video programs and information about our wide array of upcoming events, please visit 92y.org. This program is copyright 2008 by the 92nd Street Y.